Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's nothing to investigate unless you have evidence. I'm trying to get to the truth. Hello, this is Gordon Hayden and welcome to Hooked on Redemption. Coming up this week, we'll be hearing from Mark Huberman about playing the role of Detective Dermot O'Kelly. He shows up in the latest episode looking for answers around Mo Dunford's character, Owen Maloney. And we learn about Owen, he's not all that he seems. And we'll be going behind the scenes of Redemption with script supervisor Eva Kelly. But before all of that, it's time for this week's Deep Dive with Serena Bellissimo. First up, here are some of the highlights from episode three. Maloney's been on our radar for a while. He's dangerous. Leave him to us. Where's your dad? Haven't seen him in years. Liam and Cara's father. He's applied to the district court to be made guardian. I am trying my best here. I want to stay here with you and Liam. Here to see your daughter? She's dead. Maloney grooms vulnerable women, makes them work for him, and when he's finished with them, they conveniently die. That's Cara. If you so much as look in the direction of my grandchildren, I will make your life a living hell. I've been threatened before. I'm never the one who ends up with regrets. And now we're going to take a look at episode three of Redemption. And joining me, as always, is Serena Bellissimo. Serena, great to talk to you. And picking up now where things left off last time, Colette, she's still intrigued by this mysterious bag but the bag has a key and she's examining this key because this key looks like it might hold an awful lot of answers. Oh my God, Gordon, what an episode. I felt like finally we are starting to get some answers. There was so much going on and it was more than just about the key, wasn't it? But we finally got to find out what the mystery behind this key. Oh, we did indeed. Oh, Maloney, he's not the, uh, the nice guy he has alluded himself to be because when we see Colette yet, like she's intrigued by the key, she's getting the uh, the front door locks changed. That'll come into play a little later on in the episode, but she's also visited by Detective O'Kelly, who's played by Mark Huberman, and Detective Burns, who's played by Patrick Bartons, who, Patrick, we would have met in the first episode. He was the one that called Colette to let her know about the passing of her daughter, Stacey. But the two of them, they're interested in Owen Maloney because he's bad news. And the thing is, Owen has used Colette as an alibi. My daughter's boyfriend called round. And who would that be? Owen, Owen Maloney. What time did he leave? About 6.30. Do you want to tell me what's going on? Maloney's giving you as his alibi. His alibi for what? We can't go into details about that, I'm afraid. Look, Claire, you know yourself, there's only so much we can give you. We really appreciate your help, though. I'd stay well away from him if I were you. Now, that was really interesting, because when they first walked into the house, I thought, they thought, 
that Colette was actually a part of this. They mm. were being very mysterious. They weren't, even though they're supposed to be colleagues, they were really professional going, you know how this works, Colette. We can only tell you what you need to know. And they weren't telling her why she needed an alibi. And then when she finally gave her alibi, which happened to be Owen was in the house with her, that's when they revealed, well, you're dealing with some really shady and very, very dangerous characters here. Big time. Like he's connected to this gang, the Donnelly gang, will be very much in the vein of the Kinnahans. And they're saying, you keep well enough away from this guy. We'll handle things. But good old Colette, she's never going to be swayed. She is going to get to the bottom of this mystery. She now knows full well there's more to Stacey's death than meets the eye. She's always kind of had a feeling there was more to this than a, a suicide. But she decides that she is going to look into this key and she visits the security assured locks. They're the company who um, are behind the key. And she's having a tough time just trying to get the address because obviously the key is not in her name. She needs to find out who the name is in. And she manages to spy the address of the owner of the key. The, The manager of this business is none too happy about Colette just snooping around and but anyway, Colette manages to get the information and then that leads her on her own like little mission to try and uncover more about the type of dealings that Owen Maloney has had. Yeah. So she she finds the address. She goes to the address. But of course, Gordon, it's not always as simple as it sounds. There's always there always seems to be some roadblock when she gets to the place. So she gets to the house that looks pretty much abandoned. And she's told by one of the neighbours there, look, that the girl you're looking for hasn't been there for a long time, but her mum lives just behind her. So while she's there, though, she gets an envelope. Do you remember that envelope she picked yes. up there? Right? And that's that's another clue for her. But we, we don't find out straight away. Like, we're left guessing the whole episode. Don't find out straight away what's in the, what's in the contents of the envelope. But we do get to meet the mother. And the mother, even though they're from two very different backgrounds, her uh, Colette and the girl's mum are basically feeling the same thing because their daughters were taken in by this smooth guy. Um, We find out that the daughter actually worked at a pharmacy. So Mm. the types of girls that Owen is going after uh, have similar backgrounds. They're also looking, they're lost and looking for something and someone to look after them. And Owen seems to swoop in, get them addicted, not only to him, but also to the drugs. And then they meet an untimely death. While all this is going on, there's also a second story, Serena, at play. And this one, actually, I just have to say the character of Dominic Kirby, the uh, cut price jewelers owner. This guy is fantastic. He's, a, he's such a great character. Before we move on and, and, and chat about it, I just want to play this little scene. This is where Colette and her partner, Siobhan, they've arrived at the jewelers. There's a, a robbery has taken place. And this is their encounter with Dominic Kirby. Listen, sorry, we're closed, This Jeff. is my colleague, Detective Garda Cunningham. Great. Finally a grown-up in the room. Marvellous. Right, so clearly you've had a break-in, yeah? You nailed it. Just by looking at it, you, you got all that, did you? So, uh, you want to talk me through what happened? The cameras there are linked to my phone, so when anything happens, I get an alert this time. I floor it to get here. <laughs> I'll probably get a speeding fine. That's what'll happen. I'll get a speeding fine. Your mum won't get caught, but I'll get a speeding fine. 
So there's a little bit of Dominic Kirby in action, an absolute hurricane of a man. So this is the second story that's at play here, Serena, this investigation. Yeah. Now, God, I have to ask you, because I've been watching, you know, every episode seems to have a second story. Mm. And and I, I did enjoy this one and the way they unraveled it. Now, are we supposed to be finding clues in this? Do you think this second story is somehow attached to the main one? Or is this just to show us that, you know what, Colette, you really do have a job to do. You know, Jane is breathing down your neck. Focus on what you're meant to be doing and not on the other one? And is it a way for us to sort of get to know her colleagues? Because I, I've told you from the beginning, one of my favourite characters is Siobhan. I wish we saw her more. But she really, um, she shines whenever she's around Colette. So what, what do you make of the second story? I think you hit the nail on the head when you say, I think it's just a way for us to see Colette interact with her colleagues and also just seeing her doing her job, but also that this is the job that she is meant to be doing. And this is why the likes of Jane, who's played by the great Siobhan McSweeney, that's why she's always getting really bristled with Colette Cunningham because Colette should be just doing these, these type of jobs that you are basically meant to do. Find out who's responsible for the likes of this breaking in this jewelers instead of going off on your own little per- trivial pursuits. So that's why Jane is getting a hassle from her bosses, which then comes yeah. down onto Colette. But you really find in this episode, Jane is watching Colette like a hawk. And, and this is the thing. Um, Colette thinks she's been really clever and no one knows what's going on. Like earlier you mentioned she was trying to find who this key belonged to. And she was flashing her badge and she thought she was being smart, going, I don't need a warrant, I'm a police officer. But all of these things are sort of backfiring on her because the late, the manager from the locksmith place ended up calling Jane to find mm-hmm. out who Colette was. So she was caught out in that way. And then there's a scene where Colette seems to be spying. Uh, sorry, Jane seems to be spying on Colette. So Colette is always getting caught out by Jane. I almost feel like if she, if She's going to crack this case. She needs to get Jane on side. Absolutely. Now, one person she definitely has on side is Patrick (laughs) Farron, who's played by Keith McArlene. And the two of them, they are kind of like desk buddies. You know, there's only like maybe a couple of feet between them. But Patrick's always there to lend a helping hand with any of Colette's investigations. But Patrick and Colette, I've noticed there's a bit of chemistry going on there, Serena. Yeah, I'm really enjoying this. I think she's got all these barriers up, but when she's around her colleagues, and I think this is why I love when I see Patrick and Siobhan on screen, we see more of a human side of her. And I don't know, could they? Because I think he's definitely interested mm-hmm. and I think she's taking notice. And I think that'd be a lovely storyline to play out in amongst all this darkness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There might be a bit of romance for Claire at the end of this. Just to jump back to one of the detectives that I mentioned earlier on, O'Kelly, who's played by Mark Huberman, because he does come back into play a little later on in the episode. And you mentioned how Jane Connolly, the sergeant, has been watching Colette. And she does see her talking to O'Kelly. And this is obviously getting her back up now. What is Colette doing? Why is she talking to him? She's going off piste and she's now meddling in affairs that she shouldn't. This is what you call staying away from him. Look, he is using her like he used my daughter. Like he used Marie Gormley. What are you talking about? We are on the same side here, right? I hope so. We've got eyes on him. 
We can't arrest them for having a girlfriend. Look. I found this at Marie Gormley's house. There's a pattern here. Maloney grooms vulnerable women, makes them work for him, and when he's finished with them, they conveniently die from overdose and no one asks any questions. You're too close to this. You're not thinking straight. I'm thinking perfectly straight. But with O'Kelly, she's managed to get more information. She has be, she's been doing her own investigative work on Owen Maloney, played by Mo Dunford. And she's seen him cavorting with another woman. And she's seen him. At, it looks like it's around the Grand Canal area of Dublin. And getting yeah. into a high-powered BMW. And Colette's thinking, he's at it again. He's doing the exact same thing again. He is just plumossing these women in order for some ulterior motive. Here's the evidence. And O'Kelly, he is very stringent, isn't he, with her, Serena? He's telling her to back off. Yeah, now, again, don't know if I'm reading too much into it. It's for one of either two reasons. One is he is genuinely concerned because when he was talking about the damage that um, that uh, Mo Dumford's character does to people, like he's, he's a horrible human being, did he not um, either break someone's arm or or cut someone's arm off? Like he was like, you mm-hmm. don't know who you're getting involved with. He's really, really dangerous. You need to stay away. So it's either coming from a place of I'm really concerned and you cannot, and she cannot be investigating this on her own. She needs some sort of backup. Or, Gordon, is there corruption in the Oh, that is great. I love where your head's going, Serena, because I would have instantly thought, you know, and even though O'Kelly, this is the problem with him because he's so gruff. He's just a real old grump. And that's the problem with him. You you would think that he's just like his attitude, like, get out of the way. We're we're dealing with this. You basically need to move off our turf. We've got this. You know, how dare you try to tell us what to do, how to do our job. But I think because he is so gruff that it is it is actually coming from a good place. I think he really is concerned. The fact that Owen Maloney does have connection to Colette and her family. And it's better if she backs off, he will stay out of the picture altogether. So I think he is trying to be as protective as possible. But unfortunately, the manner in which he does it comes across like he is this perennial moody figure. But you're right, though. Could there be corruption at play? I never thought of it like well, that. Because, Gordon, do you remember, we're going back to her love interest now, um, Farron, who works with her, right? Do you remember... When Colette, I think they were in the pub and they were chatting and Colette turned to him and said, do you know, have you never thought about going for Jane's job? And he turned around and he said two really interesting things. He said, I've actually burnt too many bridges. So what's going on there? Like has he gone rogue like like Colette has? Mm. And he also said, we all can't be captains. Oh, yes, that's right. So is there more going on here, Gordon? Like, is is there going to be an explosive episode four on its way? Well, I tell you something, that's a great deep dive there, Serena. You've really picked up on something. Is everyone as they seem? Could there be a mole there within these branch of detectives? Similar to what we've seen before with The Departed. Could there be somebody uh, working for the Donnelly clan that's inside working with Angarda Shiakana? A couple of the other little stories at play, we mentioned about the jewellers. That does have a resolution. We'll get to that in a sec. But another story is Colette's relationship again with Cara, played by Abby Fitz. Cara is devastated by the fact that the locks have been changed and Colette totally forgot to tell her. Yeah, so 
you know, at the end of during um, last week's episode, we saw that, you know, they were starting to build some sort of relationship. Car returned to her for some support. But then the changing of the locks, that was like the final straw for Cara. She she actually had a complete breakdown and said, you know, there is so much change happening in my life and then I can't even get into my own house. And that has like hit a bump in their relationship. Yes. You do feel, though, things do mellow out a little bit because I think when Colette just has an honest face to face with her and say, look, can we just stop fighting with each other? And that just, I don't know, was that the, was that the pivotal moment that needed to happen really to make Cara see, you know what, she's not going anywhere. She does have her best interest at heart. Yes, she dropped the ball, not telling me about the locks, but you know what, she's here for us now. Well, I hope so, because, you know, if, if she doesn't get the kids on side, their father, Niall, has just stepped back into the picture. We saw the, her lawyer, Colette's lawyer, tell her that, you know, even though um, her daughter wanted her to be the guardian of the kids, Niall has now actually put in an order going, I'd like full custody of my own kids. Oh, it, that's going to be so intriguing how that's going to play out. The character of Niall is played by Ian Lloyd Anderson. And so he'll be coming into the frame next week. I will actually have him on the podcast as well. But getting back to the jewellery uh, story, okay. basically story B, the good old Dominic Kirby. We finally find out, Serena, what was at play with that jewellers? How did you think that story aspect played out? Oh, my God. I was so devastated for the nephew. Because it was almost like a commentary on what's happening today with a lot of small businesses. You know, a lot of small businesses are forced to close. Now, they don't go to the extreme of what Dominic's going to, okay? But basically, he wasn't this massive criminal mastermind. The robbery took place because his business is going under and he was just trying to get some money from the insurance. I'm not condoning this, but I... I was a bit heartbroken for him. I, I was a bit angry when I thought he was going to take let the, the nephew try and take the fall for it. But, like, I was heartbroken when this was happening. And I think what we're seeing through this as well, there's a lot, every time there's one of, like, the story B happening, there's always Colette showing her um, empathy and sympathy because there's always a young person involved. Yeah, you're so right. We've seen that now throughout the series that there's always a young person attached to the second story. And Jane always wants Colette to throw the book at them, but Colette never throws the book at them. Colette always goes for the more lenient lenient approach because more often than not, the young person involved in the crime is there because someone older, an adult in their lives. That is so true. Well picked up on Serena. And then the final moment in oh, this, bye. we are left with what a cliffhanger where we finally get to the bottom of the key, the location, this lockup. Colette opens the door and she's in this warehouse of sorts. It's not a particularly big warehouse, but it's yeah. small. And she's kind of looking around going, hmm, okay, what? What has this all got to do with Stacy and the young girl earlier on when she when she met her mother? And you're thinking, okay, what is going to happen? And then all of a sudden, enter the frame, Owen Maloney. Oh my gosh, it was sinister for so many reasons. The first, the fact that he was in there, and you're going, oh my god, what is he going to do do to her? But the second, 
How long has he been following her for, Gordon? This is the scary part, isn't it, Serena? He clearly was wise to her from the very get-go. And he thought, yeah, I'm going to keep tabs on you because you're getting closer to things. And his mask, Serena, it really slips. Oh, it really does. He said such horrific things. Like, um, he, oh, it was actually horrible. He he was talking to her about Stacey and he said, um, Stacey was damaged goods. There's plenty of effed up girls out there who are broken by parents like you. How's Cara? How's Cara? And, and then and she lost it. And oh, my, my God. God. <laughs> she nearly gets all Rocky Balboa on him. She just, I mean, yeah. you just see, I mean, the tigeress and her just rawr, launching herself at him. But you just feel this is a game changer now. He is now fully aware of what she is doing. She is on the hunt. She is trying to track him down and he's letting her know you best now just back away or bad things are going to happen. So Serena, where do we think? That's what I'm thinking. You know, how is this going to play out? Because he leaves her there in the warehouse and she's there thinking, oh my God, what is going to happen next? As the audience, Serena, what do you think is going to happen next? I don't know. I look, obviously the one thing we all know is that it doesn't matter how many times she's been threatened, she's going to keep following this until she gets the resolution she wants. I think with Kara being threatened, Ross hasn't really made an appearance. Kara's boyfriend didn't really make an appearance in this episode, so we don't know what's happening there. But, like, with Kara being threatened, with her love for her grandson, Liam, as well, Will is the fact that we're seeing Niall coming back into the picture. Is she going to give up her grandkids to Niall just to protect them, especially after what was said by Maloney. Oh, that's a really good thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a really good take, Serena. Yeah, that could possibly play out. Oh, all will be revealed. There's so much more that's going to unfold. I think episode four is going to be a big, big episode of how things are going to play out now as we get to the finale of Redemption. Serena Blissmo, a pleasure as always. We will chat to you next week. Thanks, Gordon. Did your mom ever mention me? Sometimes, yeah. She said you threw her out of home when she was 17. I looked for her for years. She didn't want to be found. So you just gave up on her? I tried everything. She just disappeared. Now on Hooked on Redemption, actor Mark Huberman, he plays the role of Detective Dermot O'Kelly, who is looking into the shady old Maloney, played by Mo Dumfort. Now, he's none too pleased when Colette begins an investigation of her own. Now, you'll know Mark from such series as Vikings Valhalla, Finding Joy and Striking Out. And then on the film front, he's been in a Frank for Lenny Abrahamson and Noble alongside Deirdre O'Kane. And I recently spoke to him after the cast and crew screening of episode three of Redemption. But before we hear from Mark, Cooperman, here's a clip of him in action as Detective Dermot O'Kelly. I understand you're upset, but you know as well as I do what the coroner said about the death of your daughter. There was no foul play. There's nothing to investigate unless you have evidence. Do you have any evidence? No. I'm sorry. Before it was advice, but now it's an order. Mark Huberman, lovely to meet you, sir. Tell us about your character and how he fits into this story. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking as I came down the steps, I've, I'm old enough now to be the grumpy older cop. You know, you know that kind of cliche American guy who was like, no! So, yeah, I'm playing that kind of guy. So, uh, yeah, I suppose Paula's character comes over, joins the Irish situation and kind of 
is trying to tiptoe around certain like certain scenarios or just basically play the game over in the Irish style within the police within the Gardaí. And I'm kind of the, the narky lad who says no or that's not cool or you're not allowed to do that. So, yeah, I'm kind of like the older cop referee character who just kind of a little bit of a handbrake on her progress <laughs> at certain stages through the show just because I'm uh, a little bit by the book and uh, not like don't care for emotion or, you know, like obviously he's just very, very stuck in the mud. Like he's not, I'm not saying he's not a human being, but he's just like these are the rules and you can't break them. In terms of the voice now, did you changing things up for the you know the character? Did I change the voice? I did change the voice a little bit. Have you seen it? I might have been privy to a few episodes. Yeah, I, it's, it's one of those things, man. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I was like, no one's ever going to notice that, but straight away you have. There you go. Yeah, so I went for that Mickey Mouse falsetto high voice just to play against his authority. Uh, no, yeah, I think I just decided that... Um, the character may not be as Southside Dublin as I am. He's a bit gruff. He's a bit gruff, and he wouldn't be as uh, <laughs> me as much of a. How are you? Yeah, I think just I just uh, yeah I, I tried to actually. It's funny. There's a, I have a family. One of my a cousin on my mum's side is a retired uh, detective inspector. So uh, I'm not saying I did an impersonation of him, but he was kind of like I you know it was deadly. We spent a weekend walking around town. And he showed me every single, oh, these Garda offices and Garda buildings. You'd never even notice as, as a punter through town, different parts, of the, different parts of town, where different offices are and what gets done in each one, just to get play a bit of catch-up so that I wasn't completely talking pony when I was giving out to people. So, uh, yeah, so, and just like, uh, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, there aren't many people where I'm from who are guards, you know, in a way. So, like, I, I, one lad I was in college with, uh, I did science in Trinity. He went on to become a guard, but that's it. So, like, I don't want to sound like some super Southside rugby head or something, but just that uh, I just felt, yeah, it's one of those things. I, I but I thought it was so subtle, no one would ever notice. <laughs> there we go. It's the nerdy bit of me there. <laughs> You're being rumbled. God damn it. So he's Australian. Yeah, he's Australian. Yeah, that's that's what I thought I'd try and do. Can I ask you about shooting at the height of the pandemic and? just what that process is like because I could imagine from the production team's perspective they're so worried about no one getting sick but what was it like for you guys on set was that difficult it was weird I mean like it's one of those things like it, it, there was less interaction I suppose you know like say even silly things like your lunch break which would normally be communal everyone gets to hang out uh, like was very much like where you sit everyone sits two meters apart holding a bit of food on your knee but like I have to say like the because everyone was still mid-pandemic high level of fear that getting getting a free test was actually great. Because, <laughs> you know, both my folks are alive, they're older, my dad wouldn't be great. So knowing that when you go to work and you're getting a test, it was it was great relief that I'd always go and visit him the day after I'd been filming. <laughs> Sounds crazy, but yeah, just that kind of thing. And, and even yourself, knowing getting tested, knowing you don't have it, was like a weird comfort as much as it was uncomfortable getting tested, but it was handy, you know, for that sense. So, And, and did it change the shooting schedule in terms of were the days shorter or, or at all? Were they more restrictive in terms of what you could shoot on a, on a given day? Um, I don't think so. I think, I'd say, like, it's so impressive, anything that got made the last two years in Ireland and the, and the, the, restri- the difficulty involved, like you say, like whole departments on set that were just to do with COVID, COVID officers, jobs that didn't exist before and people coming in and looking after it. And, yeah, the set was, was amazing. And just, like, letting it just be dealt with, that it was never up in the air, ambiguous. You come to set, everyone on set is tested, everyone's now safe. There's still ways you have to behave or be around each other. 
but, but keeping everyone because people you know there were a couple of movies made at the very beginning where people were living in bubbles in hotels but we were all going home at night so I think that gave a little bit well, I have to say it was run so smoothly and you never felt compromised or, you know, or like are, are we in danger it was really really well done Mark, it just in, in terms of the redemption now, the six episodes, I was uh, had a pleasure talking to Sean Cook, the writer, and I did say that the end, without giving anything away, it kind of you feel that there's going to be more from D.I. Colette Cunningham. <laughs> I get more from you as well. Like, I don't know, like, do you think we might see potentially more uh, of redemption? I know it's very, we can only speculate at the moment, but did it kind of leave you thinking maybe there's more for, from this? I mean... I would hope so. I'm sure that any, you know, it's very rare that you make something completely with a full stop at the end of it. But getting someone like Paula to come over was such a coup. I think it's just, she's a phenomenal, phenomenal actor. And like, like the show, to have someone like her at, at the top of the, to like running the ship was incredible. And I think, yeah, I, I suppose they have to wait and see now if people like it or are into it or how it goes down. But I think they'd be crazy not to consider the story going further if they can if, if, if they're allowed and the public allowed or if it's all if the green lights keep going I think they'd be crazy not to but then you know yeah some things are made just to be that one-off standalone piece but uh, I, yeah you'd have to ask them I'm not sure I think even those standalone pieces sometimes go it's weird we, we had an idea for a second season so yeah you never know but it'd be nice if it did yeah and finally finally uh, what's next for yourself now are we looking at stage or in front of camera what's happening uh, yeah, last year was, I think, it was a great, like I did, I was on Valhalla over here, and then uh, I did a couple of movies, actually, one in Cyprus and one in Belgium. So uh, they're both going to come out, hopefully, later in the summer, doing festivals. And yeah, I'm going over to do a little theatre gig in London in the week after next. So trying to keep all the fires alive. But yeah, I was just really, like, very, very fortunate last year when I know lots and lots of my mates and different people in the industry struggled and seemed like there was nothing happening i don't know what happened but uh i think i don't know so many people were unavailable i was i don't know what it was it was like i managed not to catch covid for the whole year so i got got into a couple of sets but yeah i, I was really lucky and yet interesting to see what these things all come out now you know mark huberman it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you so much you. thanks very much there's nothing to investigate unless you have evidence you are too close to this you know you are i'm trying to get to the truth Stacy made me their guardian. They're my kids. I can't begin to imagine how hard this is for you. What's gonna happen to us? You found me. I'm not gonna leave you. Now on the podcast, we like to go behind the scenes of Redemption and learn about some of the production roles. This week, we chat to script supervisor Eva Kelly. But before we do, here's a clip from episode three. If you so much as look in the direction of my grandchildren, I will make your life live in hell. Well, that sounds like a threat, Gerd. It was meant to. I've been threatened before. The funny thing is, I'm never the one who ends up with regrets. There is a little bit from Redemption, and I am delighted now to be joined by the script supervisor on the series, Eva Kelly. Eva, it's lovely to have you here. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Now, Eva, I suppose we'll, we'll start off with, for those that would never have heard about a script supervisor before, what does the role entail? Uh, the script supervisor is basically responsible for maintaining the continuity of everything, essentially, uh, throughout the filming of a production. So it ranges from 
ensuring hair, makeup and costume are correct to the movement of the actors matches to the, any changes to the dialogue or changes to the script make sense. Also that um, as much material as possible can be given to the editor so he or she can do a smooth cut to make basically the best cut of a programme they can. Like you've a big say on the set, like, for example, because the director's got so many things going on. You're obviously working in tandem with them. If they're about to get into a scene, do you have the power to go, whoa, John, to the director? That's not right there in the background. We need to fix that because continuity wise, it's going to be all off. Absolutely. And it's best that you do as quickly as possible because there's no point in wasting time doing takes that you're looking at going, this may be the best performance ever, but we can't use it because it can't be cut together with the wide shot or that kind of thing. So you you jump in as quickly as possible, say, no, 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 hold on, let's fix this. Uh, you know, mainly also because, again, an actor might be giving, you know, a fantastic performance. You know, the nuance wasn't the same on the t- takes before and stuff like that. And you don't want to waste that kind of thing because, oh God, a picture has dropped off the wall. That's going to be there and not there and there and not there during an edit. So what sort of preparation do you do, Eva, as a matter of interest when you're working on a job like Save Redemption? Um, well, the prep work that we do, that script supervisors do at the very start, one of the first things is that we're almost new eyes to a script. So a script will be sent to us that has somebody, writers have been working on for months or years and they've done various um, drafts of it and stuff like that. And fresh eyes come in and we see big continuity things that, you know, a writer who's been doing this all the time will skip past because they know the story. Mm. So we point those kind of things out. Then we do um, what's called an estimated timing. So we go through the script scene by scene and uh, basically time it as though we're watching the scene already shot and on TV and how long that would be for each scene to give everybody an idea of how long. So if, if you're looking for a script that's, Suppose the film is supposed to be, say, 90 minutes or an episode is supposed to be 45 minutes. I could come in after an estimate and say, actually, you're running at about 62 minutes here. So we need to cut it down before we get on set, because otherwise you're shooting stuff that's not necessary. Mm. Um, and then we the rest of our prep has to do with breaking down how many story days are in a script. Basically, when and where those story days come along, everybody's on the same page when it comes to change of costume, change of hair, aging injuries or stuff like that. And then there's page counts and, you know, basically all of that. We basically break it down to the minuscule of or the minutia of um, continuity so that everybody in all departments are all on the same page Mm. going forward. So that, there's you know, we can basically all be ready to go for the scene, have everything set and everybody, you know, knowing exactly what they're doing. And then with your department then, as a matter of interest then, Eva, would you be feeding in then directly to say somebody like the first AD, who then mm-hmm. is also then sort of breaking down the plan for the day, essentially? Um, yes, no, like my, my breakdown goes to every department. So it'll go to the head, uh, it'll go to the first ADs, the director, the hair, makeup, costume props, everything. Um, the AD will use, for, for instance, my story days, to you know help with scheduling so kind of thinking right well we've got four scenes in this location from that story day if I put them all together rather than jumping 
around different story days, then it means we only have one costume change then. So for you, like we kind of look at your career, Eva, you've been so busy. Like there's been an incredible uh, range of work, you know, from mm. high end drama to recently The Green Knight, which was incredibly well received internationally. Mm. And everyone always has different roads into the industry. For you, like, did you always have a an aim to like, get on set? How did you find your way in? Well, my story is actually kind of a little bit strange. Um, when I left college, um, I did computers. Or, sorry, when I left school, I did computers in college, which I hated. Took a year out and went back to college with the intention of doing English um, because I wanted to do journalism. Um, but in my first year, you aside from English, you had to pick two other subjects. And one of the subjects I picked was film studies. And by the end of the first year, I dropped English and continued with the film studies. And I came out with uh, a degree in film studies. But the degree I did, it was quite broad and very, um, I suppose, theoretical. Like it wasn't as practical as some of the, the courses are now. Um, so I, strangely enough, I went to... Um, uh, the summer that I finished, I went to LA on a J1 with a friend of mine, um, mainly because her mother's friend was the only person we knew in film. And her mother's friend was a script supervisor. Now, I had no idea what that was, really. Um, and she had said she worked on the OC at the time. And she said she'd get us an internship. But just before we went, the program was cancelled. So we said, you know, fine, we'll go over anyway. Nine week holiday, get a job in an Irish bar, it'd be great. And we did. And uh, in the Tom Bergen's Irish bar in West Hollywood, I was waitressing and met this gentleman. He was in he was an older gentleman in his 70s who heard the accent and went, you know, what are you doing here? And I told him I'd come over for an internship as a script supervisor, but it had fallen through. And oh, you know, that's it. And very coincidentally and you know I don't know how it happened but this gentleman actually was a script supervisor and had been from when he was in his 20s and had just retired and was running a workshop and asked me would I like to do it for free wow so yeah um this guy he had done all the little house in the prairie and he'd done without a trace and ER and loads of different things so um I did that workshop with him and there was four of us doing it and he was just so passionate and so interested and he had just so there were so many details and that he told you about set and what you need to do and all of those kind of things things that when I was in college I was told a script supervisor took the time of each take that was it and but this guy was able to give so many tips and 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 really give you give me an idea of what the job was and I I just kind of it just was contagious I just caught the love of it off him and um then when I came home, it took a couple of years, but I managed to get in on set uh, with the script supervisor here and shadowed them for um, on a job. And after that, she gave my number to, I think it was Filmbase at the time and the Irish Film Board. And I just started doing shorts and it just went from there. And like the old adage, you know, you're only as good as your last job. And so because it is one of those industries where contacts are hugely important, mm-hmm. networking is obviously important to go from job to job. And, and of course, then the, your back catalogue, like when you started doing all the shorts and then started to break through into features and, and television shows, mm-hmm. was that a difficult process? Because, of, you know, you're kind of looking to the future going, God, I wonder where the next gig is going to come from. Mm-hmm. It is. It was at the time. And to, to be honest, it still is like it's contract work. So you you can never 
plan for anything in advance because you don't know what you're going to be working on next. Uh, when I first started, it was a lot of it. It was shorts. In fact, it was all shorts. I think it, one year I did about 20. But the thing about that was a lot of the people at the time making those shorts were also breaking in or had just broken into the industry. So the more we were all working along, the more then when they were going on to, you know, get, getting opportunities and bigger things, they were going, oh, I know her and I'll give her a call, you know, things like that. And then, to be honest, uh, script supervisors, it's slightly unusual within the industry because there are only so many of us in the country. We're all known. There's about 12 of us in the country altogether. So we've worked with everybody. You know, everybody in the industry at this point, I'm 12 years down the line. I've pretty much worked with everyone who's in the Irish industry. They always know our numbers and who to come to. Not, you know, not necessarily that they'll pick one person, but they know all of us and know who to call when there's something coming in. So um, now it's a lot easier. It's a lot less, um, you know, oh, my God, am I ever going to get through or is anyone going to ever call me or anything like that? But before it, it was like the first couple of years, it's something that you have to kind of go into and go, OK, I'm not going to be paid well for the first couple of years. I have mm. to serve my dues and and work on everything and anything and do as much as I possibly can to build up a good name for myself. Mm. And then after that, you just hope it goes well. Looking at paying it forward, you know, for for anyone that's listening to this interview and goes, wow, that's an area within film and television, I never heard of. And Mm -hmm. like that might be really, really inspired for listening to your story because it seems like it was a line for you to to follow this pursuit when you think about it even. Can you do courses? I don't know, maybe Screen Ireland do. I know Filmbase may have back in the day, Mm -hmm. but um, I'm not sure if there is any now. Um, They're actually, well, we've kind of set up our own set of courses. Film or Screen Training does. Um, but basically over the lockdown, we, we were kind of lucky in that sense. Uh, during the lockdown, we were able to set up a guild. And within that guild, we have basically a pathway to training. We've set out all the steps, everything that you need to do and a portal for people to send in CVs who would like to get involved. It kind of starts out with basically just shadowing a script supervisor for a day or two, because as like you said, it's a lot better now. People know our job a lot more now. But when I was first starting, nobody knew what a script supervisor was. And I was still getting questions on set from different crew members going, what is it you actually do? So people didn't know what it was. Whereas now there's a lot more um, understanding of it. We decided at first, at the very, very first step is that somebody who says they want to be a script supervisor and thinks they want to be comes on to set, excuse me, comes on to set and shadows us, watches us for a couple of days because it is a very mentally and physically demanding job. It's quite a difficult job. Most jobs in the film industry is is physically demanding, um, but it is quite mentally demanding as well. And um, sometimes you will have people go, oh, that actually wasn't what I was expecting it to be. And then others will go, that's it. That's exactly what I want to do. Um, and those people, we then have basically we have a have a, a list of CVs. So whenever one of us gets the opportunity to bring a trainee on to a job, and it's usually the bigger jobs, the episodic jobs, like for instance Valhalla or Winks, or uh, sorry, Fate of the Winks or things like that, we will then basically grab one from um, from our list, bring them on set with us, and then train them up. But it takes a while because we have the guild itself has put in place. Uh, a certain amount of hours and a certain amount of basically things that you need to do to become trained. And then we sign off and and you are an established script supervisor. But through that training, because you're on the big jobs with us, 
you get known. Whereas before, when I was starting, it was just hoping that somebody needed someone on a short. Whereas um, now we're able to kind of go see this person here. We're training them up. They're really, really good. Keep their name in mind for any shorts or anything you've got coming up. It's a much more kind of structured and easier way to get involved. Having said that, because there is more interest and more understanding of the job now, unfortunately, we've got a huge amount of people who want to do it. Mm -hmm. And there are only so many training positions that we have to fill. It's frustrating for a lot of the people who who want to be trainees or trying to get in with us at the moment because not all jobs are capable of bringing on trainees for every department because obviously you wouldn't expect a trainee to come on and not be paid or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They have to be properly, you know, employed and looked after. It's usually bigger jobs that will allow us to take on a trainee and have the facilities in place to take one. Uh, Screen Training Ireland and Screen Scene and and a few places have been really, really good at getting involved with these big productions to put agreements in place to allow them to get people into training positions and has opened it a lot more. But as I said, the demand is huge at the moment. We don't have enough to fulfill it at the moment. If there was one key piece of advice for someone who would like to be a script supervisor, what would it be? God, (laughs) I think it's don't be afraid to be independent insofar as the script supervisor, for the most part, is a department of one. And so they need to not be afraid to speak up to be assertive and yet at the same time understand that, you know, not absolutely everything can be facilitated. A huge, actually, one of the biggest pieces of advice I'd give to a a new script supervisor is make sure to get yourself in on or watch an edit Mm -hmm. because it is amazing what an edit can do to get around certain problems. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, you can't be on set thinking, that's fine, it'll be fixed up. You know, the editor will look after that. You, as much as possible, make sure that every single thing to do with continuity is correct. But at the same time, you can't be turning around going, oh, that's unusable when it's not. It's very, it's, it's essential that you sit in on an edit or at least watch when you're watching programs, watch an edit and see what they do and how they do it, because it's very informative for us. Okay, that's a great piece of advice. Someone mightn't think that at all. But Eva Kelly, script supervisor, it's been so lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. And best of luck with all the other projects that you have coming down the tracks. Thank you very much. I haven't seen my daughter for 20 years. She left home when she was 17. Hello? You only met the kids for the first time a few weeks ago. Who are you? I'm your grandmother. Must be a big adjustment. Yeah, Liam's doing a little bit better than Kara. She said that you were as good as dead to her. I meant for you. And that's it for this week on the podcast. A big thanks, as always, to Virgin Media Television, Metropolitan Films, and Tall Story Pictures. From me, Gordon Hayden, I'll chat to you on the next Hooked On Redemption. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.